0: Hello, I'm Somi Aryan. I'm a tech philosopher, author, filmmaker, and the founder of InPeak, a platform where entrepreneurs and business professionals come to network, learn together, and stay ahead of the curve in the fast-paced world of emerging technologies like blockchain, Web3, NFTs, AI, automation, and so much more. My guest on today's podcast is Carl Flourish, one of my favorite people in the Ethereum community. I first heard him on the Bankless podcast and I was really touched by his optimistic outlook on technology as a whole and blockchain and especially Ethereum in particular. It's no wonder that he is now the chief technology officer at Optimism, which is an Ethereum layer two scaling solution. We talked about the cultural and socioeconomic impacts of tokenization and so many new challenges and opportunities that come with it. I really enjoyed this conversation with Carl Flourish and I hope you do too. Before we start, I also wanted to tell you about our sponsor for today's show. MetaBrew Society, founded by Holger Manwiller, is the first project that builds a utility bridge between NFTs and the metaverse and a legacy industry. Every MetaBrew Society NFT grants you in real life utility of up to 300 cans of free craft beer per year in perpetuity. You also get voting rights on business decisions and access to exclusive brewing classes and beer tastings. MetaBrew Society is preparing to buy a real brewery from the NFT drop, where they deliver product innovations like high protein or smoked beers. They are also creating iconic beer shops in a digital twin of the Metabrew society in the metaverse. The NFT revolution of the beer industry happens now, and you can be part of it. So I listened to your podcast interview on Bankless, and I was so impressed. I think it was one of my most favorite conversation. And I listened to everything on uh, a right? I'd say possibly my most favorite, you know, I really, really enjoyed it. Okay. Uh, And I think it's because, um, you know, I'm a tech philosopher and it was like, your philosophical, uh, you know, points of view, your optimism, your interest, your understanding, the depth of your understanding of uh, how technology, uh, can change uh you know the future of humanity it was so interesting to me i really really enjoyed it and i i just i can't tell you how excited i was you know that that we would be able to have this conversation and i hope this will be the first of many because i, I you know you're one of those people that uh i could talk to for forever because you are so You know, there are not many people who are building uh, these technologies, who really deeply think about the philosophical implications of them, and, and you know, and that's uh, you know, that's a, a big uh, concern for me as a tech philosopher because you know, I, I think about the philosophical point of points of these. So for our listeners, do you want to explain to them who you are, what you do?
1: Sure. Well, what a lovely <laughs> intro. Um, yes. So I am Carl. I have been doing this Ethereum stuff for quite some time. Um, got in really deep in like 2015 or so. Um, I then, uh... Worked on uh, consensus protocols with Vitalik and like did all of these things. And at that point, I was doing a bunch of like public speaking and kind of more, quote, social media stuff. Um, But then uh, I just kind of went into build mode and I continue to be in build mode, to be honest with you. Um, But uh, founded uh, co-founded Optimism with Jing and Ben um, and have been doing that kind of ever since. And uh, it's been it's been, a, been a wild ride, to be honest. Um, but you are very astute in that I, I don't it's just a lot to uh, put ideas out there. I like putting ideas out there. I'm not big into being the uh, receiver of all of the craziness that is, you know, the likes and all, you know, oh my yeah. gosh, it's. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so speaking of optimism, so you still you're still with the optimism, right? So congratulations on on your uh, you know on your. Uh, token release. Uh, How's that going? How how are you feeling right now? You must be so knackered, right?
1: (laughs) Yes, it is crazy. It is a lot happening all at once. I will say that we have been trying to realize this vision for years. Like 2018, I think is when it really kind of became super clear that we needed to simultaneously scale Ethereum, right? Scale this blockchain technology and also start funding public goods and like build actual sustainable mechanisms for governing and funding public goods. And so it is really exciting and a little overwhelming to have finally gotten to the point where, like, the beginning of the governance and, you know, the optimism collective, which is what we're calling this kind of governance system that we intend to have fund an enormous number of public goods. Like, if we actually succeed at our absolutely insane vision, like, it will be, uh, you know, we'll have millions and millions of, of, of optimism citizens and, and token holders, and it'll be a big, you You know big fun thing and collaborative and bottom up and oh i'm very excited so
0: so look (laughs) i haven't used optimism myself yet i haven't quite understood how to like we have got uh, our nfts coming out on the main ethereum mainnet um and i really wanted to try and use a layer two solution to make it cheaper easier but i think that right now we don't yet have a full understanding but let's first go back to, I have made some notes here of your conversation that you had with uh, David Hoffman. So one of the things that you you said, you had mentioned something that was a quote from someone else. Can you remind us who this quote was from? Yeah. Crypto allows us to program money. Uh, programming money allows us to program incentives. And programming incentive allows us to program people. Remind me who was this quote from, and then uh, let's dig into that because that's, Fascinating, and I I completely agree with you. I actually recently gave a TED talk where I talked about the fact that um, crypto or or tokenization is about aligning incentives between people, and that has massive implications. But that said, you are one of the people who is at the heart of, like, at the source of where this programming is, is coming from
1: sure so this quote was from 2016 i believe maybe 2017 um from mike golden he worked on uh token curated registries um tcrs and like a bunch of other fun things i'm not 100 sure what he's up to right now but huge shout out to mike golden um but it was it was in preparation for my devcon 3 talk which was introducing or Introduction to Crypto Economics Programmable Incentives, I think. Anyway, the the kind of premise of the talk was exactly this. It was essentially we have these tools to program incentives and thereby programming people and programming mass coordination. And we need to look at that for what it is and actually make sure that the incentives that we are programming into these systems result in beneficial outcomes for everyone. Because I'm a, I'm a firm believer that if we don't talk openly about these sorts of you know, dangers and opportunities, that we're not going to actually move in quite the right direction. So it was, it was an eye-opening quote for me as I was giving this presentation. Mike was like, oh, I have this quote for you. And I was like, oh yeah, I would love to grab that. So I used it as like the, the centerpiece of that presentation. So shout out to Mike Golden again.
0: Oh, amazing. For somebody listening to this, can you explain to them exactly what you mean by it? How does this incentive mechanism work in the crypto space? And then follow up to that, if people who are creating these uh, tokens uh, have the ability to uh, program people, where do the government stand? because then that means that they are not the ones programming money, right? Um, so for millennia and for centuries, governments have been able to kind of use money as a way to manipulate people. But now for the first time, they are not the ones creating that. So, so where, does, where does it leave them?
1: Cool, so I'll actually steal my uh, DevCon 3 talk because it has a good example here. So, at the time, I was introducing or or talking about a little-known project called Uniswap. So I, it was little-known at the time, but it is now uh, you know one of the top crypto projects, and tr- it's a it's a decentralized exchange which transacts you know billions of dollars you know all of the time. So it is incredibly popular. It is it is just an unbelievable success. But at the time that I was talking about it, it was nothing. It was you know my friend's uh, hobby kind of project, and he was able. This is the thing that was so incredible to me about Ethereum. Ethereum gave him the tools. It empowered Hayden to write software, which could be trusted by people all across the internet who don't know Hayden, who have no connection to him, with. Thousands upon thousands and eventually millions upon millions and eventually billions upon billions of dollars So that is mind-boggling now. How does this like relate to programming incentives and programming people? Well in Uniswap? There are two roles there is the exchange, you know the person who's exchanging the money and then there is the liquidity provider and the liquidity provider is, you know, putting up this money, and now people can exchange. And one of the people that we suspected would start exchanging very often were these arbitragers, so these bots that would go and they transact and they trade and all of these things. So my friend Hayden was able to write some, you know, a, you know, a few hundred lines of code, very small bit of code, deploy it to Ethereum, and thereby bootstrap all of these. This trust, this network of people that are all interacting with this system in an incredibly predictable way. Like it's not like we uploaded this thing and you know, boom, now it's it's off on going crazy. It was like, oh, we have we have a pretty good idea of the incentives that we are creating when we deployed this mechanism. So we were able to like analyze what those incentives are, deploy a system, and then have people interact with it and scale it up to this enormous scale all in a, you know, garage, you know, budget, one person, you know, and a friend. That, like, that, that was, it's just like a mind-boggling thing. And so that money, the, the key there, right, is that money and trust are how we scale coordination today, right? This is really, this is what we do. We, we have these, you know, this whole capitalist system where we're paying money and like, that's the one thing. Everyone speaks money. That is at least, <laughs> that is the, the, the status quo. And so we're able to use Ethereum to speak a universal language and scale that trust and scale interaction with all of these people. And that's, that's an incredibly powerful tool. And it's also very scary.
0: Yeah, definitely. Okay, so now let's go to my second question that was about government. So because if anybody who understands the way that the mechanism, you know, like Satoshi, for example, right? Like the first person who created that, right? He, she, they, you know, they realized that they could create an incentive system uh, for the miners to continue and to have these limitations on the number of tokens and that this uh, could go without him, right? Um, so then look at the disruptions that that has caused to, and, and it's continuing to cause, I mean, it's just really starting to cause to the governments. So um, then Ethereum comes along and it's like, okay, now we are going to take that uh, ethos and like apply it to everything, not just to money, but to everything, right? So what does this mean for the future of, um, of governance?
1: I am extremely bullish on the prospect that many of the functions of government can be solved in a more bottom-up and self-organizing way. So what, is, what does that really mean? Like, the main thing that Ethereum provided Hayden is it empowered him to have new tools, at his disposal that were not available before to an average individual and those tools are the tools of mass coordination because they have to do with money they have to do with incentive systems and that the fact that we're able to now experiment with all of these incentive systems at such a rapid pace and in such a bottom-up manner means that i think that the many of the issues, the systemic issues, the governance failures that we have today can actually be remedied by the systems that we are now creating and we're creating in this bottom-up entrepreneurial, you know, uh, empowerment kind of way, and that's really exciting. And I don't like, you know, I hate, I hate to have a kind of like adversarial uh, relationship with government because I actually. I don't think it necessarily needs to be adversarial because at the end of the day government is for the people it is you know this this construction that we all you know have benefited from and you know suffered from also but like this is something that is part of our lives and I think that giving people tools and empowering them is something that is just like a net good that can kind of expand what we see as a governable Surface area and do a better job at it.
0: Yeah, um, definitely. I agree with you. But one thing that we need to bear in mind is that, you know, I always talk about the fact that jobs, any kind of job, most of the time is a result of inefficiency, right? Like a job is created to compensate for an inefficiency. And if you could write a code that would, uh, you know, remove that friction. and and inefficiency then that job disappears so that applies to jobs in the government as much as it does to everywhere else Um, so regardless of just governments in general you know you think you have something like uniswap you know compare that to something like binance you know the number of staff everything that it takes to run that as well how many people work with uniswap right now
1: no. Right now, it's relatively big, but it, I mean, I think it's less It's less than 100.
0: Let's take a look, right? I, I want to see how many people to <laughs> Binance. Binance. uh 4,000, over 4,000. Wow. Uh, and Uniswap has got less than 100. Um, it's because, you know, essentially Uniswap started out with a line of code, basically,
1: right? Yeah.
0: So um, that was written by, by one person. So, of course, we have to look at, you know, how much they're turning over, etc. You know, a very another very good example, if you're not thinking in terms of Web3, when Instagram was sold to Facebook, they had 15 people working there and they sold for 1 billion. And in the same year, Kodak with 135,000 employees went bust wow yeah so this is this is the power of of technology right so so talking about these incentives look as somebody who is like at the heart of creating these codes you know when as engineers a lot of times you guys are like sitting there thinking so excited about look this is what a line of code can do and and it can you know uh, create so much efficiency but but what's happening right now is that the speed of technology uh, technological advancements is so much faster than what we can come up with a solution for all the people who are who are going to be out of a job right so do you wake up sometimes thinking about it and, and do you have any thoughts or solutions for that
1: yes most definitely um so 100 percent there is, we are in this moment and this is also something talked about in the podcast, this moment is a moment where we are massively disrupting a huge number of industries, we are reshaping our social structures, there's like so many open questions about how we organize, etc. And one of the biggest areas that I am extremely concerned about and also optimistic that we can make a difference here, is in giving individual human beings a voice in that new World, so what does that really mean? That means that as we are disrupting, as we are losing, or you know reshaping jobs and rethinking about how we organize, we should be very intentional about saying, "Okay, you are a human being. I'm going to give you a platform to express your opinion, and your opinion is going to dictate where we are going and how we get there." And I don't mean that in a kind of you know old guard uh democratic you know representation system i i think that we can do a lot better and use technology to actually give people a more empowered and more strong voice and that what that is going to mean is like you know decentralized proof of humanity systems decentralized attestations you know what you know, vitalik is talking about with soulbound tokens and glen weill and you know uh others all of those Things we need to invest in them to, you know, destroy the bot farms and destroy, you know, clean up our social discourse. Like, there's so there's so much there um, that comes from just empowering and valuing on an explicit level. Like, individual people need a voice that can rise above the bots or the, you know, etc. That is so important, and it's important that we seize the moment now, because the longer we wait, the more centralized control we get with these technologies that are at the moment in the hands of a very small group of people, because most of them are in the hands of of wealth or or dictated by wealth, shares, etc., and... wealth, unfortunately, centralizes over time. So we need some counterbalance. it's not to say, you know, get rid of, (laughs) get rid of capitalist systems and those incentive structures. No, they're extraordinarily important. And we have to, you know, respect that. But we also do want to empower individuals because we care about them too. So it's it's gonna be a bit of a balance.
0: Yeah, definitely. Do you think though that people want that? Because, you know, sometimes as people who are like, At the heart of building these systems and and like talking among ourselves, we sometimes miss like what the day-to-day people think about and and what they want. Because you know, like again, when I gave my TED talk, it was about the next generation of democracy is being built on the next generation of the internet. Are you ready for it? And one thing that I realized as I gave that talk is that probably people are not ready for it. And Mm. you know, like because we are telling them, hey, look. You know, you don't have to have a representative democracy. You can have direct democracy. You know that this is the next generation of democracy. You can, you can participate. But actually, most people don't necessarily want to participate because they're um, a part of that is probably because they are so concerned with like their day to day lives and, and problems and stuff. Uh, and, and part of it is that I think as humans, you know, most of us are lazy. If you think about it, when the lockdowns happen uh, within the first two weeks of the lockdown, Uh, the number of Netflix subscribers went up by millions, right? And in the meantime, like, I haven't uh, haven't watched a single Netflix episode for the past two and a half years or, you know, since since then, because um, I've been busy building a a business, right? But most people actually choose to take a break, to spend time with their family. They don't necessarily want those responsibilities. And that's where this thing of being able to program money and incentives it could go wrong um, because you know if people aren't paying attention and they're not fully participating, you wouldn't know how to do the best thing for for everybody, right? So, um, do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Yes. So there are two key things here. I think um, the first one is that uh, honestly, <laughs> shout out to Lex Friedman podcast. He oftentimes he talks about this thing, which is that we think about. Uh, AI, you know, machine learning systems as a centralizing force where we have these companies that are creating these algorithms that are spoon-feeding us information and we're just kind of, you know, just now... using them and that's a very centralizing force but the same technology can be used to enable us to express ourselves and have preferences that we otherwise wouldn't have time to do so okay what does that really look like like something that i personally would love is if i could kind of first off uh, so if i could just kind of exist on a day-to-day basis doing the things that i like to do Maybe I answer a question or maybe I complain about something on occasion, but like generally it's like this transparent system that I don't have to worry too much about. If I want to worry about it, I can look in and see how my points are being allocated. But like roughly, I just have this, I, okay, I, this is kind of sci-fi, right? You just, you got to get me on it. But like, I just want to do my thing and then have a, a, an AI kind of thing that I can trust that I know how it works roughly and I can inspect it and then I can look at the decisions that it's making for how, you know, what what it thinks my preferences are and then it can use I can use that and I can say submit and now boom I've submitted my vote and I barely did any work. I didn't do any stupid research on some like weird like politician that I don't understand and that I don't hope to ever be able to understand right all these things. It's just like too much overhead. As you said, like I can't do that. I can answer some simple questions. Am I you know, am I eating good food? Uh, am I sleeping enough? <laughs> Um, am I, you know, do I have good friends? Do I feel connected to my community? Do I go outside enough? Do I, you know, do I have health problems? Like, those are questions I can answer, and I'm not going to understand the, like, policy decisions. And, like, are, you know, that's just too much. Um, also, generally, I'm. Uh, it would be nice if we could get away from, like, heavy-handed policy decisions. But, okay, that's another side tangent. That was the first part. So that's about, like, people being empowered to, you know, not have to worry about... Uh, uh, so much of the decision-making process. And the second thing is I do think that It is important for the builders who care about this stuff right now, who are building and looking out for the future, that we build systems that enable people to express themselves if that technology is created, that makes it really seamless to express yourself and like low friction. Because I think there's a good reason why we would want to be building this out of our own self-interest because I want to live in a world where the vast majority of people are happy if i wake up 30 years from now and i go to some country some town some thing and all i see is just devastation that would be a very bad experience in my very selfish interest right i'm like this is horrible the world is messed up and i don't like it right i think everyone innately has a bit of an empathetic thing that their personal feelings are dictated by the feelings of People out there, if there are people suffering, it hurts you, and that I, I think we should be cultivating that, and we should also acknowledge that as builders, so that we take our power as builders, put it in the hands of these people, build systems for them to actually report how they're doing, and then build the kind of infrastructure to you know make that make our economic systems reflect those reports. Um,
0: the way that you put it, it sounds so much more hopeful, and and this is why I wanted to have you on here because a lot of times people have got a lot of worries, a lot of negative feelings about technology, and I'm always trying to put them at ease and trying to kind of explain to them that look, technology is a good thing, but that said, you need to participate in it. You need to, you know, if you want it to go in the in the right direction, you have to uh, be part of, you know, giving it a shape, right? Um, OK, so so this all sounds great. So now tell me a little bit about your history with um, Ethereum, because you're, you're very young. You look very young. You know, you, I, I don't know how, how young you are, but are you around the same age uh, as uh, Vitalik and, and the people around him?
1: Yes. So little known fact, um, Vitalik, myself, and a few others, Jing, um, Phil. Anyway, all of us are like within a few months of each other in in terms of age. And so, what I like to think is that that demonstrates a bit of the like randomness, in some sense, of you yeah. know having a platform and being out here and privileged to be speaking. Because we are the same age, and let's be honest, it's probably not really a coincidence because we like grew up doing similar things and had similar interests which brought us together and now we're you know trying to change change things for the better right like that's that's a thing
0: you're like later millennials like younger millennials (laughs) Uh, yeah
1: 1994 um so yeah this was uh the way that i was introduced to vitalik was i was just scrolling through youtube trying to be a little, you know, counterculture, you know, anarchist. I hated, I hated, um, uh, what's it called, Uh, net neutrality laws. I was just like super anti that kind of stuff. Really loved open source. Um, And I found Vitalik talking about decentralized consensus protocols and using them for things that I did not realize decentralized systems could do. Like I knew... Peer-to-peer technology would like scratch my you know counterculture itch, but I didn't know that you could do so much more and actually like replace the institutions that we kind of you know exist within and replace Google and replace Facebook and all that kind of stuff. And that got me very excited. So I immediately, I was in college, I was working on peer-to-peer stuff, but then I immediately started diving into Ethereum, just reading everything I could. Um, I, I had a tech job for one month, I quit it, my mom got worried about me, we made it. Um, and then uh, I just started getting involved, I worked at Consensus. I worked with Mike Golden, at least in the same room, and um, then I ended up kind of wanting to drift closer and closer to the protocol, the core Ethereum protocol. Not necessarily because I knew a whole lot about the core protocol or consensus and all these really deep technical things, but more because I was really drawn to the people and the thinkers. Because, you know, we don't really recognize the fact that Vitalik and Vlad and these early Ethereum thinkers were simultaneously incredible technologists, but also incredible political scientists and like, you know, culture creators and uh, it was amazing. So I wanted to get close to that. So I worked with Vlad, who's this early, you know, consensus protocol person that I mentioned and then eventually I went up to a to Vitalik at a conference and was like, "Hey, I've been working with Vlad. It's nice to meet you. Uh, you know, could I do work for you?" And he was like, "Okay, do this." And then he didn't talk to me for a week and then I did it and then I did it again and again and I kept doing things for him until he realized that he could depend on me. And we as I said, shared cultural, you know, things and perspectives and background kind of, you know, all that stuff both played World of Warcraft um, and, you know, it just, it worked out and I, uh, you know, I'm very grateful for him. I'm grateful that he had a platform. I'm grateful that it gave me, you know, anyway, yeah. very yeah. grateful.
0: Amazing. So now you pointed out something very interesting here. You said that you were all born around the same age. Most of you I'm guessing, you know, white, a young male, uh, you know, very similar kind of culture, similar background, played the same games. Do you ever, uh, have any concerns do you ever worry that maybe the lack of diversity in uh, the, the kind of people that are building these technologies uh may be a problem and uh, you know that could it be that you guys may be missing things
1: yeah so 100 percent, it does concern me um i think that there are things we can do at a lot of different levels um the things that I feel most empowered to do right now is have a level of courage, I guess, to uh, kind of trust fall into the uh, will of people that I don't know and that I don't really understand too well, right? Like I know that I have a limited perspective and I know that I won't be able to gain a ultimate perspective and make decisions on everyone's behalf and part of that intuition is informing why we need to privilege individual human beings and make sure that they are represented and their voice is heard and you know the whole thing about building systems that empower people to express themselves like that is the thing that i feel the most uh uh, capable of doing at this moment because it is a little bit scary right you're you're in this you're building these protocols you're you know trying to envision this world and you're like oh my gosh you know i'm just going to seed my ability to control my baby right there's a lot of like you know instincts to like nurture it and oh i'm the one who can take care of it But the incredible thing about decentralized technology and this ethos is that the axiom that we are you know, motivated by is decentralization is putting it in the hands of a lot of different people, and so that axiom I think counterweights the kind of Web two kind of allure of the you know strong central corporation that has these like you know uh, ma- major power centers. Like the fact that we are trying to think about decentralization, I think will hopefully naturally allow it to express and actually be built for more people, and if and and i do think that this is a competitive advantage over the traditional kind of centralized powers because it does incorporate more opinions and it does and by incorporating more opinions you end up with a better product. So I'm, I'm not. I don't, really, I don't think that this is like some. You know, I'm very interested in like optimal and uh, you know actual incentive compatible design, right? We're we're building these blockchain systems. We're programming incentives. They have to be incentive compatible. It's not like we're empowering people just for the. You know, we are. But like all of these things, I'm trying to like guide it in a in a way that that is actually rooted in our own self interest, our collective self interest, um, as a as a species. Um, but anyway, that's just one thing there's many aspects from education to, uh, you know, different networks that are built up different organizations, community centers. I would love, yeah. Oh my gosh. Anyway,
0: Yeah. I'm really glad that, you know, you think about that. So one of the things that I often try to explain, especially when I'm talking to women, trying to bring them into space, uh, when I try to explain about technology is that there are three ways that we interact with technology. It's design, engineer, use, right? And, you know, maybe women don't participate as much in the coding of the engineering, but they can participate in the design and the use because they, the design and the use will create this loop of, you know, few fee- feedback from the use. And then that feedback goes into the design, you know, because whenever people think about how do we get more women into the space, they try to immediately teach women coding. And that's mm-hmm. good. But that's not necessarily, like, the optimum uh, solution, right? The low-hanging fruit is to encourage more people of diverse background to use and then feedback on it so that the design can be improved. You know, part of the reason why I wanted to talk to you is, like, hopefully to get to know you and, like, think about how can people like me building, you know, a, a platforms to bring in more people into the Web3 space. You know, like, I have got quite a lot of, members in our platform that i can see them being very very useful in helping you know shape these things but they are not coders and just because they're not coders they get they get locked out and i'm not a coder you know i taught myself python just so that i understand to some degree when i'm talking to my developers so i, I can speak their language but i'm not a coder and it's not something that you know it's a language if you don't use it every day you lose it right so um i think that there's an opportunity for people like yourself to really think in terms of that design engineer use and think, how can you involve you know, more people in the other areas?
1: Nice. I mean, this is a new concept to me, but it sounds great. I definitely think that we underrate how many ways you can get involved and you can actually make an impact. I definitely absolutely agree with that. I think that um, a lot of coding is actually not so distant from from actually just general written communication and communication generally and like custom creation and laws and you know th- those sorts of things like if we can spread the right memes, this is just the thing that I often say as my default if you don't know what to do then the first thing you do is like learn about all of the great ideas that people have that you really want to see flourish and then think about them and communicate them and talk about them, express them in your own way, to your community, to your you know et cetera like the more that we can create, a narrative and a, a, uh, a set of cultural guidelines that d- they don't need to be like written in stone but they can be things that emerge from us learning how to interact with each other and work together on these massive scales like every single bit of uh, uh, contributions that you can make to that collective effort is going to be enormously valuable and I, I really do think that like Okay, the the big secret, right, is that uh even though uh you know, blockchain gave us programmable money and programmable money gave us programmable incentives and that gave us programmable people, even though that is the case, we had programmable people for a long time. In fact, the way that we program people is by talking to each other and in the war of ideas and the war of culture and like I know nothing war of That's a hot, hot, uh, hot uh, uh, area. But what I just mean is, like, the ideas that create something like, uh, you know, liberal, you know, the liberal world that we live in, like that, those ideas are incredibly valuable. And I think that we have way more evolution that we can do to, like, create fundamental axioms that guide mass coordination. For instance, the like similar to the axioms that people should be free and mm-hmm. generally not be encumbered by yeah. dictatorial control. Right. Like that's something that is like an axiom, a decentralization axiom that has f- been incredibly powerful.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. OK, so decentralization, do you think that decentralization should become a value in society, just like democracy is a value?
1: Yes. And I think that it has been a value. In fact, I think it's like uh, kind of part of like liberal traditions and many other traditions. Like, there, there's tons of uh, thought been that has been put into empowering individual people to express themselves and not kind of stamping down values and for i mean okay i'm learning about this stuff even recently like i didn't really think about it but like the idea of liberalism came before the idea of democracy so it was like you're liberal within the context of a monarch and that's like really crazy to me um but i i really think that uh as we move forward, we are going to evolve the cultural norms and expectations that we have for each other and the things that we are building to really promote decentralization, right? I really think that decentralization is in. It's important from a technological perspective that we encode decentralization into the systems that we build. So we don't have these implicit, secret, shadowy you know centers of control. Don't like those. We also need to encode decentralization and peace and kindness and happiness into our cultural values that we live in within the technological systems. So I, I really do think there's a place for both. I will say that there's a lot of low-hanging fruit in the technological section, and that's why we are building decentralization systems at optimism.
0: (laughs) Yeah, we're going to get to optimism shortly. So tell me this, (laughs) do you ever get this question? It's a question that I get quite a lot. A lot of people think, well, crypto, you say that it's decentralized and it's going to empower people. But actually, for a lot of people who are thinking about getting into it now, they're like, look at the price of one ETH. It's so expensive. How do I get my hands on something like that? It's like, at its highest level when the price of ETH was like around $4,800, that's like one person's uh, a month's salary, right? And then there are uh, people who are, you know, including myself, you know, who go and buy these NFTs that are so expensive sometimes, you know, like, and I can, people will look at that and they're like, you know, how on earth do you say that this is making things more accessible? So for a lot of people looking at the prices of ETH and Bitcoin and things like that, they see it as being inaccessible and like that they can't participate. Do you have any thoughts on that? What would you say to those people?
1: Yes. Um, if people are worried that crypto is not democratized, that's because it's not, unfortunately, right? The reason uh, Vitalik, got a lot of slat or a lot of hate on twitter unfortunately but he basically was like the price of sending a transaction should never raise be like greater than a cent or something i don't remember what he said exactly but it was some small number which we have now massively exceeded yeah. and the reality <laughs> is that it has priced out an enormous number of people now does the value of one ETH correspond to the cost of a transaction? Not exactly, right? So we can have expensive ETH, that's fine, as long as the price of transacting and using the system is at a reasonable size. But, that said, we need, in order to realize low transaction fees, we need to scale. We absolutely need to be able to support global adoption. And that means changing the way that the blockchain systems are written and built so that it can accommodate that scale. And unfortunately, Ethereum was not able to keep up with the demand. The demand far exceeded the amount of scalability that Ethereum is able to provide. But it is not a fundamental property of the system. The systems can be cheap. They, it does not cost a lot of money to run a transaction on a computer. That is pretty cheap. It is only a artifact of the current state of the technology, and it's very solvable. It's one of those problems that will be solved inevitably no matter what. Um, so we absolutely need to solve that. The other thing, just to say it again, In order to really democratize the technology, we need identity systems. We need a way to privilege individuals. Because in a world, I mean, it would be so cool if if we get the scaling thing down, and then we're able to, for instance, provide every single human being a free budget of gas, right? That they can transact some number of times for free. That would be super cool, because now they're incentivized to go transact, participate in the network, participate in the you know the communities, et cetera. Like that would be great. Things like that are only possible if we have better identity systems. Now I'm not talking about an identity system. I'm, you know, this is not, again, even with identity, we should be thinking in a decentralized context, meaning we will have many identity systems, which all kind of, we patch together to create some kind of rough semblance of, a, of an individual, which is privacy preserved. So all of these caveats, right? No dystopias here.
0: Yes, yeah, no, that that all sounds good. So can you explain to me how optimism, look, uh, uh, forgive my ignorance because I'm not a technical person, like I'm really trying uh, to understand from a a lay woman's perspective here. But what I want to understand is what is optimism? What is Arbitrum? what is polygon? How are these things different? And how can I, as a user, uh, interact with them without having to think like, for example, if I wanted to release my NFTs on on Ethereum, uh, how would I use Optimism to bring down the gas fees uh, in a way that my users don't have to do something technical, uh, you know, or or is this something that my developer has to do? So, so can you explain to me how it works?
1: Cool. So. I guess I'll start off with generally when we interact with crypto systems, you are on a network and you have some kind of money in that network and you're transacting on the network. So the way from a user experience perspective, all of the systems that you listed out, Optimism, Arbitrum, Polygon, etc., they all function roughly similarly, in that you deposit into the, the system from Ethereum, or you deposit in from an exchange. There are multiple exchanges you can go directly. And then you transact on that network, do the things, and you withdraw, right? Or or do whatever. You can stay on the network as well. So that is the general situation. Some of the networks that you can deposit into and withdraw from have different security properties. The key differentiator for what we call rollups in Ethereum, and there, there are two types of rollups: there's optimistic rollups and zk rollups. They're just technical differences; very, r- quite similar overall. Um, those rollups inherit the security of Ethereum. So Ethereum is this credibly neutral kind of base layer for all of these different networks that now exist on top of it, and it secures all of them so it makes it so that you can trust them if you trust ethereum you can trust the network that is a roll up on ethereum that is the main classification then there's lots of other yes
0: let me see make sure that i understand the roll up so what what the roll up is is that correct me if i'm wrong is this the reason for the name that it's basically taking a number of transactions and it rolls them up into one thing right and then and then puts them through is that why it's what, yes. Why, it
1: yes it rolls them up to ethereum okay. so ethereum holds the transactions and then you download them from ethereum and you can execute them locally and verify that they worked properly
0: okay so batches them together so that there's one transaction rather than a lot of transactions
1: yes and note that there are, there is, this is a massive design space, and that I'm kind of simplifying a lot of things. Gotcha. And that we are not only trying to build the roll up to make it more scalable, right? Our system, our system called Optimism, that network, Optimistic Ethereum. Uh, we are also trying to upgrade Ethereum itself to support more rollup transactions. Okay. So there's this thing we're promo- we're pushing called EIP 4844, you know, this this proposal which will improve the lower the fees across the board for all rollups on Ethereum. So it's very important that we actually not only improve the rollups but also improve Ethereum. So this is the technology is a very uh, <laughs> There are lots of dimensions, and that is what it is to be an engineer. It's trying to wrangle all the complexity and dimensions of, uh, it's crazy.
0: Okay, so so sorry, I, I interrupted you. So, okay, so you, you created the roll up. So now the question was, as a user, what does it mean uh, to me? Like, how do I uh, interact with it?
1: Good question. So you do interact with it in the same way that you interact with Uh, depositing and withdrawing from different bank accounts or different exchanges or different Venmo you know all of these things you're moving your money from one network to another network and so optimism you move your money to optimism and then you can transact within that network now the difference between a Venmo or an exchange and a decentralized permissionless blockchain is that not only do can you move your money to the the, the blockchain? Any developer can now deploy smart contracts, which are basically new applications to that network. So instead of imagine your Venmo can actually not only just send money around, but now it can do some you know, lending or you know even more cool things, buying or selling NFTs, et cetera, all without the permission or the gatekeeping of a centralized entity. So that's the main, main difference of these blockchains more generally.
0: So would it be like, for example, if I go to OpenSea and I'm buying an NFT, will it give me an option to say, would you like to buy this through Optimism?
1: Yeah, it was like switch your network and, you yeah, know, because I've seen, stuff. for
0: example, when I'm sending money from Binance and when I'm sending ETH, it says sometimes, like, do you want to use Arbitrum, for example? But it, it usually says, but it's not available right now. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> like you know, Armstrong thought not available Right, I don't know why, but I've never, I've never used it, and because I, I didn't know enough about it, I never really, you know, like even tried. So, is that available right now? Uh, how do we see it? Where do
1: we see it? Yeah. So it is indeed available right now. I would go to Optimism.io for a bunch of information on it and how to bridge and all that kind of stuff, how to use it. Um, for minting NFTs, there's a project called Quixotic. So shout out to Quixotic. They have tons of cool NFTs. You can go mess around there. And there's a whole list. If you go to um, Optimism.io and you go slash apps, then yeah. there's a bunch of applications that you can like look at, mess around with. And yeah, it's a little little playground. We also have a Discord. Um.
0: Okay, I will join the Discord, this is great. So we've got an NFT drop coming uh, at the end of July, and then there will be a lot of people coming into our network uh, who are in the space, um, and they're going to want to learn more about these things. So I think like we just need to make these things more accessible, right? Because right now, it's really only accessible to developers. And for example, you had a token drop, right? And, and the people who got the tokens were people who use it, but like the, the people who are not developers wouldn't know how to use it, <laughs> you know? Like, so if we want to get more people benefit from these the token drops and, and community building, all that stuff, you know, we need to show them how it works.
1: Yes, definitely. And I do think that the, okay, the sad reality is that at this very moment, it is very hard for a passerby kind of user to use the network. And from that perspective, it's a little bit, uh, I think we need to invest in the tools and the systems to make them more user friendly and a little bit more uh yeah helpful to these end users because it is so difficult at this moment to get involved um however i will say that we should uh, that we shouldn't think of it as getting uh, getting involved shouldn't be like black or white like you're either on the network and you're involved or you're off the network and you're not involved like the reality is this is a broader movement and that we can start talking about and investigating like for instance if you're in the Discord and you don't, you've never used Optimism, but you've learned about it and you understand how it works and you're like interested in what we're doing and the governance and you have your opinions. That's totally an acceptable place to be and totally reasonable. In fact, if I didn't have the time to like deeply understand these protocols and these systems and how, what a wallet is and how much gas is a reasonable amount of gas, like what gas is, you know, all these, there's a huge amount of stuff. If I didn't have time for that. I honestly would, would be here for the memes and the culture. I would not be here for the like for the actual usage of the network until it was in a more digestible state. So all that to say that we shouldn't feel bad necessarily that the the tools and the industry is not in a good space for end users cuz that's that's an opportunity for if you wanted to start a company, you can go do that, start a company and fix one of those problems. But you shouldn't feel bad as an end user who doesn't have time to mess around with this kind of stuff. To like, yeah, and that's you know. one of the
0: problems that I'm trying to solve with our platform. You know, to bring people like yourself, to educate, to teach people, to show them, to uh, to get them comfortable with it. Because people feel really out of their depth when they are, uh, you know, when they're trying to interact with these things. And they just feel so uh, self-conscious that they don't know enough about it, right. That they don't know how to use these things. So, so when do you think, for example, uh, something like optimism will be in a place where everybody will be using it?
1: That is a hard question. (laughs) Okay. Really? Really, it could be. It could be in a year and a half. It could be in a year, right, with exponential growth. It could be in five years. You know, it could be that we need to wait a long time and build slowly and, you know, all the infrastructure, get it really ready, and then it just explodes one day. That is kind of the the classic question where predicting one of these like massive societal movements is really, really hard. At least it is hard to do with any accuracy about a specific time. However, what I can say is that this technology, whether it is used for good or for bad, will be used and will be the basis of the way that we interact on the internet, across the board, you know, all over the place. And that seems extremely inevitable to me. I would be surprised if it takes more than 15 years for it to just absolutely change everything. Um, But uh, under the 15-year mark, all I could say is learn about it and, you know, get excited by it and and push the people who are building or get involved and build yourself. But the most important thing is we should apply pressure so that people are going in the right direction, building systems that are good for individuals, that empower liberty and justice and happiness and goodness and uh, be optimistic because the future can be bright.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, final, final, final question. When is the merge happening? <laughs> <laughs> and does, your, does the optimism success, you know, have uh, any kind of dependence on the merge?
1: The merge is more of a security upgrade that also reduces the environmental impact of Ethereum. So that is, uh, it's somewhat separate from our technology because um, our technology is mostly focused on, you. It doesn't yeah, have to I you. mean, It affects us in so so much as it reduces the environmental impact of the transactions that we're sending, and it affects us in that it reduces the security or increases the security of the transactions. So it's great; it's very exciting. I have no idea when it. (laughs) I I am not. I I confess, I'm not involved in the kind of the merge process. No, I actually had
0: Tim Baker on my podcast a few days. Nice.
1: (laughs) Okay, good. Leave (laughs) it to him; he will give you the answer. Um, I, you know, the merge yeah. has already happened yeah. and no, <laughs> I'm, what?
0: I was like, what? I'm so gullible, um, Carl, <clears throat> it's been so much fun talking to you. I really enjoyed it. Uh, you know, and I, I hope to, um, yeah, to see you at one of the conferences. I'm in London continue with uh, what you're doing. Uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm really proud of you guys and, you know, really, really great to see that you are thinking so much about the the philosophical aspects and uh, the kind of human uh, impact of what you're building. This is really what I want to see from our engineers. So this is great.
1: Well, I appreciate it. Thank you so much.
0: I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Carl Flourish. Be sure to follow him on Twitter and keep up to date with his work on optimism. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to it on Apple, Spotify, or any other one of your favorite podcast channels. And don't forget to give it a five-star rating and write a review. The full interviews are also available on my YouTube channel, The Somi Ariadne
1: Show.